Good afternoon. My name is Doug Schaefer. I am the host and producer of the podcast JEM or JEM, which stands for Justice, Equality, and Mercy. I'm a justice reform advocate here in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I served 21 years in prison myself. Uh, I've made some tremendous accomplishments since my release in 2011. And I strive every day to try to help those who are re entering society. Um, or in the diversionary programs to be as successful as possible, helping to navigate some of the obstacles and barriers to successful reentry. In the process of doing it, I've been able to make some phenomenal um, associations with some state legislators, state leaders, um, diversionary program leaders, just a variety of things, a variety of opportunities that I've been blessed to be a part of and available for any others. I just wanted to do a brief introduction to this first podcast, and it will also apply to any podcast coming after this one. While we may not always agree on our politics, my goal and my hope is that the ultimate substance and the purposes of what we discuss in these podcasts and some of the efforts that I engage in, that we strive for the outcome and not necessarily our politics on the way. Um, we're going to disagree. Uh, that's just a fact of life. That does not mean that while we are not affiliates or partners, that we cannot strive towards the same end and the same goals and assist each other whenever possible. So as you listen to these, and hopefully you will listen to these, you'll listen for the ultimate ends of what we discuss and not maybe some of the the rabbit trails or the things that we discuss on the way. Um, my goal and my heart is to help the justice involved succeed. If you share that end, you share that goal, you share that passion in your heart, then we can work towards those goals together, regardless of what some of our other politics are. Um, with that said, um, our first podcast, as I will introduce it here in a moment, is from Representative Kevin McDougal, who's the chairman of the Oklahoma Commerce and Business Committees in the State House of Representatives. It's a fantastic individual. Um, and here's the conversation that we had. I want to move beyond an introduction. So today, for the very first episode of Jim, I have Representative Kevin McDougal. He is the chair of the House Business and Commerce Committee, as well as sits on House Committees for Appropriations and Budget, A and B Public Safety, Joint Committee on Appropriations and Budget, the Joint Committee on Pandemic Relief Funding, uh, the Joint Committee on Pandemic Relief Funding for Economic Development and Workforce Working Group Rules, Select Committee on Utilities and State and Federal Redistricting, Northeast Oklahoma Subcommittee. He is an extremely busy young man. <laughs> Representative McDougal, thank you so much for being on my podcast and for nah. helping me launch this for the very first time. Nah, I'm excited for uh, you. Representative McDougal also participated in the 2021 um, Oklahoma Justice Awareness Forum. He was our concluding speaker and um, had some fantastic things to say that we wanted to share, but unfortunately we lost the last hour of our video due to a corrupt disc. It just broke my heart for, uh, not just for what you had to say, but the other panels, Miss Oklahoma, Miss sure. Oklahoma team, to get them some um, public attention before their pageant comes up in November. Absolutely. Lost it all. Devastating. So, Mr. McDougal has, or mind if I call you Kevin? At no, least Kevin's here. Absolutely. Um, Kevin is, guys, don't feel right calling yeah. I like to call you Representative <laughs> McDougal. I don't feel right. So, I had some questions that I want to ask, kind of go through some things, but we're going to do this in a conversational nature. Um, don't believe in the gotcha questions, and I'm not here to be controversial. Um, we're here to find out from you as a state legislator and as an Oklahoman how the justice system impacts the things that you have a say in. Sure. But before we do that, um, tell us a little bit about you. This is going to be just as good for me as it's going to be for anybody else that hears this. Tell us a little bit about Kevin McDougal as an Oklahoman outside of your role as a state representative. Sure. I, I was born and raised in Oklahoma, born in Pawnee, raised in Cleveland and Morrison area, and uh, worked on a small livestock farm when I was a kid. Uh, we raised sheep and horses and cattle, and every Friday night our arena was the one that people would come and rope at. And so... Uh, did that and then uh, finished my high school education, had a couple of years of school, 
and uh, went off, served eight years in the Marine Corps. And well, thank you for your service. Uh, it's my honor. I tell you, I uh, three combat tours, and my my last two years, I was a drill instructor at Paris Island, South Carolina. And I knew that if I stayed in, they were going to send me back overseas to another <laughs> combat zone. And so I thought, you know, I, I, I think I've learned enough from the Marine Corps about discipline. And, and uh, so I, I wanted to get out and try some things on my own. And I finished my undergrad, my MBA, and then uh, I started working for myself and created a company 15 years ago that we just sold off. And, and uh, so now I'm still started another business and just work in the business world and, and I ran for politics honestly because I was aggravated and uh, <laughs> I'd never been to a Republican meeting, I'd never been to uh, uh, any political event at all, uh, but the guy that was in my area uh, was trying to bring Obamacare into Oklahoma as a Republican and that affected me and my business because I had 48 employees at the time and had I broke over 50, I would have to pay $2,000 per employee to not have insurance. And so I thought if nobody else runs against this guy, I will. And that's how I got into politics. So so did you win your first time up? I, I lost my first time up running for Senate. I lost by 300 votes. I oh, spent wow. uh, 50000 and they spent 350000 against mm -hmm. me. And But I learned a lot about politics, unfortunately. And, and uh, I, I learned that it's not at all once I did get elected and came here. Uh, to get something through and to get something passed is not at all as easy as what you would think it would be. And uh, to be honest with you, the, the part of the job that I like is being able to help people because uh, there are a lot of people that have struggles and sometimes a struggle can be a cell phone bill or sometimes a struggle can be a uh, run-in with a car dealership or whatever it might be. Uh, I work on everything from death row uh, to uh, water issues in our state to, I mean, you can imagine as a representative, you have to know and understand, uh, or at least know who to go to to understand, uh, yeah. such as criminal justice. I'd come to you, right? And, and uh, because I've never been in prison, I don't know what that's like. And so uh, I have to trust uh, the knowledge of people who have been there and done that. And uh, so my abilities and skills should be more of uh, pulling people together that know better than I. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. I think it's, for me at least, I like to get to know a person before I know what they can do. Sure. Because people get tired of feeling like they're just being used because of their position or something. And right. I like knowing people. I like helping people. I don't like helping unnamed roles or, or just, I don't know, it just, it, to me it's more important to get to know somebody. Exactly. So. Okay, so let me ask a couple questions here. These sure. are all going to be just as focused, um, except possibly the last one, but. Let me start with another fairly open-ended question for you. What legislation is there currently before the House or Senate that you're aware of that's being presented this session from your from your committees or others that impact the justice system? Yeah, we won't know fully until December because that's when all the bills will be named. Um, and in January, the language will be written, so I'll know more then. But I can tell you what I've heard from other members and, and what I'm going to run myself. Uh, last year, I had a bill that would create uh, an investigative unit as a part of the parole, pardon and parole board. Uh, currently, uh, and, and I, I write this specifically for death row because I've, I've been working with the Richard Glossop case and I've seen some issues uh, that we have and I'm just trying to fix a couple of little things. Yeah. Um, but it would allow the pardon and parole board to, uh, if they have a doubt about a death row case, uh, they could actually pitch it over to the investigative unit and say, listen, we're not comfortable giving death row. We're also not comfortable releasing this person or giving commutation. Uh, we think this needs to be looked at by a third party uh, because it's been 20 years since this case was heard. Uh, so to stand up a third party to look at both sides of the evidence. Uh, so that's something that I ran last year that got held up in committee uh, because of some politics. Uh, but we will run that again this year. What I don't want to do is for somebody who's guilty um, to be able to use that unit as a, another way to delay right. the process. An um, extra appeal kind of thing. Exactly. And so it will literally be at the call of the pardon and parole. No one else can do that. But if pardon and parole has a case, and we need to give them the ability, if they have a case, uh, to push it somewhere else besides sending it straight to the governor. Uh, we have well, that, would help them. that would help them, I would think. 
to eliminate a lot of the, the just the emotion and the passion that's involved from both sides. That's right. Um, to look at the facts separate from 20 years of built-up frustrations. That's right. And the idea is if they push it to this investigative unit, the investigative unit does its study or does its investigation on it, and then they come back for a recommendation. And what it does is it strengthens pardon and parole because most of the time when you go in for a hearing, you get 45 minutes. And in Richard Glossop's case, for instance, uh, there's six years of investigative work where they've interviewed 200 people that have never been interviewed. They've got wow. 27 affidavits from those 200 that have never been presented in court, right? Uh, so in his case, we're getting ready to put him to death. And after looking at evidence that's never been presented in court, my belief is personally that he's, he's innocent. But there's no mechanism in that particular case uh, to, to be able to allow them to go anywhere other than the system, right? And the system says, you've already run through two trials, so you're guilty, no matter what. That's what the system says. But I told people who work in the system, I said, listen, if humans are involved in that process, there's opportunity for human error, no matter how good your system is, right? Well, look at the 20 years of the forensic system was under District Attorney Bob Macy. That's right. You know, and all the people that have been declared innocent because of one lady's actions. And I'm not going to speak on that issue, but it just shows you that when humans are involved, that's right. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, error happens. That's exactly right. And so we have to allow an opportunity to adjust that error, right? And that's one idea I've got. Uh, another idea that I've got that I'm, I'm running as well is if you're on death row, uh, your case, your, your, uh, uh, the, the prosecutor's information should always be available to any attorney that comes in, right? And so right now the way it is, after you go through two trials, they don't have to turn over any evidence to your new attorney at all. Really? And so Richard Glossop's attorney's been on his case now for six years. He's been requesting from Prater uh, information that they've just refused to answer any of it. Uh, you've already gone through the trial process, trial process, uh, jury trial, the, the appeals court judges, uh, everyone says that you're guilty, so therefore you're guilty, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and that's just how they believe. Mm. And so what I want to do is if we're going to put somebody to death and we're going to put them in that uh, on, on death row, we've only got 45, so it's not like we have to do this for every prisoner in Oklahoma. Uh, but at least on those cases, they have to continue to turn over evidence to the new uh, attorney, even after a second trial. And so I think it's a pretty simple bill. But Well, why, why wouldn't you be willing to do that, regardless of the politics involved? This is a huge, hu and that's part of the whole justice issue that, that beyond even the questions we're going to ask today. That's right. Is that we lose sight of the humanity of these people. That's right. And they become a number or a target or just somebody we're going to execute. When we, when we forget that these are humans like us, yes, we lose sight of the humanity. Then anything goes. Yes, but it's hard to treat a human. That's right. With value, in the ways that these people get treated sometimes. That's right. And I just don't understand why you wouldn't just okay here here's the information help help yourself to it. That's right. Not you're not going to be able to change it. So here you go. Well, Oklahomans for for years uh, in our criminal system, criminal justice system. We don't look at them as individuals and as people. We look at them as we put them away, right? We're getting you out of society, we're putting you away. And I had a meeting this morning with Trisha Everest, the uh, Secretary of Public Safety, and she agrees that what she wants to do is, is instead of that being a criminal justice system, it's actually a system that is a future job system to where we put people in and they learn a skill and they learn good habits and they learn discipline and they learn things like that where we can transition them into a workforce. One of our biggest issues right now in, in business and commerce in the state of Oklahoma is our lack of workforce. And a lot of folks think, well, that's because uh, the federal government was paying extra money for unemployment, which is true. People were making more on unemployment sitting at home than they were working their jobs and they took advantage of it. A side note on that real quick, yes. don't lose that thought. Sure. My wife, for example, she got furloughed and I was unemployed. And she made, with that federal assistance, she made $150 a week more yes. than she did from the job she's been at for 25 years. That's exactly They right. brought her back after 90 days. It was a, kind of just a temporary thing to begin with. Yeah. But just uh, how many people out there oh. went through that and way more than $150 
It a, just, a restaurant worker, for instance, that's used to making tips, uh, they got the federal unemployment. They also got the state unemployment. They ended up making four and five and six hundred dollars more a week absolutely. than they did at their jobs. And so when they got their job offers back, they said, oh, no, I'm scared of COVID. And they got to keep doing it until the uh, governor finally said, no, we're shutting off the federal funding for Oklahoma. We're not going to accept it. So I thought when he did that, that we'd all get back to work. But we still had a shortage. And I thought, why do we still have a shortage in Oklahoma? Because why are people not going back? Unemployment's over with. They're surely not sitting at home. And then I realized, we passed medical cannabis in Oklahoma two years ago. <laughs> 55,000 people left the normal workforce to go into cannabis in Oklahoma. Really? 55,000. I can believe that for a CBD store. Oh. Two of them on every block. Exactly. And we've got 6,000 growers. We've got 2,000 dispensaries. And so it's wow. a huge industry. But that's why our workforce. So, so we've got to be smart about how we transition uh, felonies, prisoners, uh, back into the workforce. We need them back into the workforce. And we don't want to treat them like second-rate citizens. They, they made a mistake. They paid for their crime. We want to get them back to work and make them uh, a, a good part of society. And, and so that's what we were talking about this morning. So she's got some ideas for that, and I'm excited to see what bills she creates. Uh, I really like Trish Evans. She was a keynote speaker for the forum also. Yes. And, um, we had a, this funny, again, I'm, I might ramble a little here and there, but we when I met with her before the, the forum, I had my, my eight-year-old daughter with us because of the work and the school shut down. And what, so I... I took her with me during the day. So I met with Trisha Evers, she was there. And between her and my eight-year-old daughter, I already got a word in advice. <laughs> I'm like, hey, this is, I'm here. <laughs> but it was funny, she's a, she's a very personable person and she really grasped. We may not, I'm, I'm certain that we don't agree oh, on a lot on of politics. Yeah. But when it comes to the justice involved and what's good for Oklahoma, I genuinely believe that she is passionate about what she's doing. And you know, the governor's done a good job of putting people like her in place. Yeah, um, She doesn't get paid. Uh, she's made her own money in her own private business. And she's here because she passionately wants to see something different yeah. in our system. And so, uh, and she's got some great ideas. So I, I like that she doesn't come within the system. She's outside and she can see things that people yeah. inside can't see. So it's nice. Absolutely. That, I mean, Go on to the next part here. It says, and this had to deal directly with what you was just talking about. So Oklahoma currently has an unemployment rate of 3.5%, according to the Oklahoma Commerce Department. Compare that to Oklahoma's record low unemployment of 2.9% in Oklahoma in October of 2000 and a 10 year low of 3% in December of 2019. Oklahoma's economy is rebounding, or has rebounded, if you will. What would you say Oklahoma has done that has facilitated that rebound, or has it happened organically, and, and where do we still need, besides just the workforce, where do we still need focus? Sure. I, you know, one of the biggest things that we did that a lot of other states didn't do, we didn't completely shut down. Uh, so during COVID, uh, when a lot of other states were shutting down, now we had Tulsa shut some things down, the mayor over there, we had Oklahoma City that shut some things down. Uh, my district, I still had tanning beds open the entire time. I really? mean, I, my district did not shut down. And I called law enforcement officers and I said, listen, you can't shut down an individual business owner who's a tax-paying citizen who wants to continue to work if they, if they want to work. And they agreed. And uh, so our sheriff and all of our law enforcement officers in my district said, we're not going to shut any business down. And uh, because of that, our economy stayed strong. We thought we were going to have a $2 billion shortfall uh, because of COVID, we ended up having a surplus. Wow. And so uh, we, we just did things the right way in Oklahoma. And, and guess what? We didn't have people dying at a higher rate than any other state. And so uh, uh, we just, we were smart about how we did things. And I appreciate the governor and the leadership that they have there because they, they did keep us open instead of shutting us down. He's taken a lot of flack over that. Even still to this day, they I, I see the House representatives make a statement over this and Right. And, and dogging him over. What really can you complain about when we don't have deaths or illnesses higher than any other state? That's right. Our economy is booming. People are making free American choices. That's right. I mean, let people make that choice for themselves. The government exactly. shouldn't force it on us. Exactly. 
and, and that's why Oklahoma's doing well. Our unemployment rate now is, is good because we stopped the federal funds. Had we not stopped the federal funds, we'd still see people on unemployment. Uh, so our unemployment rate has dropped. And our biggest need right now, like I said, is, is getting that workforce development. So we're looking at how can we bring people in from other states? How can we utilize the, our current prison system to get those folks back into the workforce? And uh, we've just got to shift that narrative because for years, someone who comes out of prison is seen as a second-rate citizen, and we need to be giving them their rights back so that they can fully get back and get to work. Uh, I had an employee one time that uh, went through the entire process and uh, getting ready to make an offer, and she, she knew it, and uh, she said, I need to tell you something. And I said, what's that? And she said, I just got out of prison. And uh, she told me what it was for and what it was about. And uh, I told her, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna go ahead and hire you, but you're not gonna tell anybody else what you just <laughs> told me, right? I want you to sit here, I want you to prove yourself. Uh, I don't want you to be a victim of what you came through in the past. And uh, so she worked for me for two and a half years. Uh, I left and went to another company. That was 15 years ago. Uh, two years ago, I'm in a state house and she calls me and she's working as a uh, legal assistant for a law firm. Awesome. And uh, so I got her first job back into the workforce. She, she created a track record, right, to where she was able to go from one job to the next, finally ends up working for an attorney, and she really wants to be an attorney, but she has a criminal record. And so we were able to have her fill out the paperwork and get her record completely expunged. Awesome. And now she's gonna be able to go to law school, and, and become a lawyer, which is a productive person, paying taxes, sure. doing what she can. She made a mistake, and it was a legitimate mistake, but she'd have never made it had someone not given her an opportunity. Absolutely. Right? So. Yeah, it's a very similar struggle with a different result. Um, I had been free out of prison for nine years, and I had um, gone through a six-month interview process with the city of Oklahoma City for their solid waste superintendent's role in 2019. Uh, I was running a solid waste management company in the private sector, had grown it to five times its revenue when I started. It was being in the process of being purchased by a larger company. So I pursued this role with the city. Six months of interviews on the application about my background. I discussed my background with everybody. They make me an offer after six months, um, hands down the most qualified candidate, but then it goes to a risk management division. And they come back and say, oh, no, sorry, based on your background, we have to withdraw the wow. offer. Not relevant, my background, not relevant to the job function at all. I had been doing that in the private sector, far stricter requirements and, and things that I would have to do in society. So I'd proven that my background wasn't relevant, and I still was, the job was withdrawn just because I had a background. Wow. Now, that's one of the things that I would like to see in Oklahoma is that I get that we don't want a, a child molester working in a daycare or a nursery center. I get that. You don't want even a drug dealer working in a pharmacy or a bank robber working in a bank. But if the background is not relevant to the job function, it should not be allowable for a company to discriminate, especially when we've got a workforce that is ready to go to work. We say we need workers, but we right. won't hire them just because I have a perceived bias or perceived risk that isn't supported by any data whatsoever. Right. It's, right. it's just, I, I love that you did that because so many people don't get that chance. And it didn't bother me because every job I've had since I've been out was through my somebody from my church. Yeah. Say, hey, Doug, I got an opportunity. Would you like to? But the average person who gets out doesn't have that network, doesn't have those people, those connections, and they, they suffer. That's you know, right. They, they get a job or they lose a job. Christmas is coming up. They've got a wife and three kids. Yeah. What man, I can't speak for the women, but I'm sure it's the same for them, but what man does not want to take care of his family, even right. in some small way at Christmas? Yeah, it's a, it's a secular holiday these days, but you still want to provide for your wife and your children. That's right. And if society will not let me integrate, yep. what do they think these people are going to do? That's to right. take, they don't want to have, a lot of them don't want to be criminals. Mm -hmm. We just give them no other chance, no That's other right. options. That's right. Yeah, we plan on opening some of those doors, I know. I look forward to seeing some of that, big time. Okay, here's one on that um, topic. He says, as the chair of the Commerce Committee, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're familiar with some of the employment statutes of Oklahoma. Yeah. 
Um, obviously, employing Oklahomans helps to boost commerce in the state and continue to improve our already low unemployment rate. However, there is an extremely large population, which we've been discussing, that just can't find those career opportunities. Yeah. Um, what incentives, protections, and or deterrents are in place in Oklahoma to help the justice involved find and keep quality employment? You know, honestly, right now, there's not many. Uh, and that's unfortunate because uh, up until the last couple of years, we really didn't even think about justice reform at all. Um, and, and Oklahoma's paid a healthy price for that. Uh, it costs more. When you, when you take a look at, a, at an individual who's incarcerated, at the amount of money that is, it costs the state for them to be in there, right? We're losing revenue from their not paying taxes. Uh, their family now is not surviving as much. So uh, all the money that goes into trying to rehabilitate and to, to mental health and to everything else, that huge amount of money, and instead of spending that amount of money, when you look at it, if we put it into the system itself and said, listen, why don't we treat this almost like a trade school? Um, not one that you chose to go to. Right. You're there, and there should still be some disciplines and restrictions, and, and uh, you have to earn your way to a certain point. Uh, because I personally believe, I don't care if you're in prison or if you're in life, you have to earn the things that you get. And if Absolutely. you don't earn them and they're given to you, then you don't respect them. And so... Uh, set up that process to where they can actually become welders and they can become trades folks and they can uh, learn how to cook or they can learn all these different trades in that particular prison system to where when they come out, as long as our laws in Oklahoma align with that, they could literally go straight into the workforce and now they're providing for their family. They feel a sense of worth. They're able to get something done on a daily basis. Uh, that doesn't mean that that's going to work for everybody. Right. I, I know and understand you're going to have a, a few. That, in fact, 80%, they say, uh, of the people who are in our state uh, prisons and jail systems now, 80% uh, will get out. I mean, at some point in time, the other 20 will continue to come back. Uh, but what about that 80%? We don't set them up for success the way it is today. And, and that's why we're having so many conversations now about what can we do inside the prison system and Trish was talking about starting those schools and and getting you the mental health that you need and and uh, those types of things so uh, it would be a huge boost to Oklahoma and as far as I know there's not any kind of a program like that in 49 other states mm. right um, so we're, we're looking at that real seriously and we really do want to lead the way in Oklahoma on all fronts that's from business uh, to justice reform and she, she said, I hate calling it criminal justice. Yeah, I don't call it yeah. that either. <laughs> and, and she calls it uh, uh, what, not rehabilitation, but uh, uh, workforce development, I think is what she, she calls it. And, and it's true. Yeah. I mean, we have an opportunity and we have a captured audience yeah. <laughs> to be able to trade what we need. And we need aerospace workers and we need uh, so many. I, I talk to people every day that say, I've got 40 positions and I can't fill but two. Um, on the way here, I drove on I-40 to one of those temp services, and one of the biggest things is that we have 50-plus manufacturing jobs available now. Please stop in and apply. Exactly. What better population exactly. to put in 50-plus manufacturing jobs, well-paying jobs, That's right. manufacturing, not dealing with sensitive military secrets or, you know, in the perfect opportunity. That's right. But they won't, they won't consider it. A lot of the temp places will not consider an ex-felon. Yeah. At all. The temp places won't, but I guarantee you that manufacturing place that needs 50 workers, he would consider it, yeah. right? He or she, <laughs> yeah. they would consider it because, and, and that's part of what Trish was talking about. Let's train them on that particular job yeah. and then let's allow them to leave the prison or the jail system, depending on right. who and what, but uh, allow them to leave and go to work at that facility, right? Hands-on experience. Hands-on yeah. experience. So now they have six months or a year before they're actually released that they're able to prove themselves. They go to work, they come back. They go to work, they come back. If they screw it up, they don't get to go to work anymore. It's kind of like an internship program. Exactly. You know, the, the Oklahoma Department of Career Tech used to have, they still have a couple, I think, they, but they used to have significantly more than what they've got now, the skill centers, which is the career tech version of, uh, for inside the prisons. Right. And I'd met Dr. Joe Ely um, 20 years ago, um, right before the Murray Building bombing. Mm. And, he hired me as his academic tutor. I was in that he was a staff. And he was had just had his bachelor's degree at the time. 
he's working on it, and he's developing his thesis and his dissertation on recidivism and employment. Fantastic um, research paper, by the way. Um, and we was talking the other day, the Moore Norman Technology Center helped us put on the forum in, in August, and they just don't focus. In fact, they keep taking away state dollars from those programs that, I mean, it's hard enough if you have the training to get a job as sure. an ex-felon, and now they're taking away the training on top of it. Um, it's good to know that Trisha Everest and you, and I know there's a couple others, Justin Humphrey has, has talked about it quite a bit, doing some things to get that education, that, that training back into them. That's right. We can't, especially if you've done any kind of, you know, 10, 15 years, you need current training. That's right. To be able to compete well, on top I, of everything else. One of the things I heard from several people at the forum we had the other day is, you spend 25 years in and then all of a sudden you get out. When you first went in, they had those bag phones in your car <laughs> and now they've got these cell phones in your hand and you don't know how to operate yeah. any of that equipment. So, uh, and, and computer technology, I mean, think about the difference in 20 to 25 years. In Internet didn't technology. exist when I went in, when I came out, it's children and now, know it. <laughs> you, and I think it might've been you or, or, or it was one of the other ones that were talking about it. You went to apply for a job and if you go to Lowe's, they put you on a computer. That was Wayne Easter. Yeah. And, and get on a computer and, and you've never seen one before, yeah. right? And they want you to fill out the application. Well, now you look like an idiot because you're standing in front of a computer that you don't know how to turn on. And so we've got to change that. It's, Oklahoma can very easily, just a little bit of effort, be the gold standard in the country on how we treat the justice involved and justice reform in general. Um, I hope to be able to do another forum coming up pretty soon. It's gonna be dealing with society's obligations to the victims. I know, like with the Julius Jones case, the victims have so much passion and so much, they they need more than just atten- public attention by a district attorney in the news media. They need so much more. I mean, I, in my particular case, um, it was a second degree felony murder charge. And had that man had a wife and children, mm-hmm. and after his death, she would have had to enter the workforce, learn a job skill, now she's got to do daycare for her children. You know, the emotional issues that the family could have forever. You can't write them a check or pat them on the back and give them closure for the case and say, we're done with you. That's right. Society has an obligation. The district attorney, I mean, the laws are in place to protect society just as much as does that individual victim. So, in my opinion, society, we have a perpetual obligation to that victim as a moral and ethical responsibility, not a legal one. Right. To help her and her children, or him, or whatever the case might be, so I hope to have a have a form that, that kind of addresses. Because I'm not the expert in that side that side of things at all. Right. Um, so I would like to learn more in that regard. What do you think some specific things are? I know I had um, I've given you. I think I think I emailed some stuff to you here a while back. Oh, I think it's adopting similar statutes in Oklahoma that would basically be the same things. Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, which has is extensive. I mean, it's pages and pages and sure. pages. Obviously, we can't go from nothing to that overnight. It's just too much work. Yeah. But the Fair Credit Reporting Act provides a lot of protections for anybody, not just an ex-felon. But federal or state agencies, government agencies, municipalities, places like that are exempt from the guidelines of the Fair Credit Reporting Act while private employers are not. Um, And there's a lot in there that talks about background reports, um, what can be reported, what can't be reported, how far back they can go depending on what it is. And in Oklahoma, the only right that an ex-felon has is to get a copy of a background report if it's used in your employment. That's the only protection that we've got. And I know that you're working on a lot of stuff. How complicated would it be to do something that says, if you do do a background report, here's the guidance, regardless of whether you're a government agency or not, if you're gonna use a background report, it has to at least be accurate. Right. Um, you can't just report whatever you want. I actually had the OSBI tell me, we're not responsible for reporting accurate information, we just report the information that we've got. That's right. Yes. Uh, and, that's, and that's the truth. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and I'm not mocking them for that, because no. they've re- received data from all these other, I mean, that's a, it sounds like a very critical narrative there, but. 
they receive data from everybody. They have no way to make sure of the accuracy, of the especially if it's just for data reporting. But there's got to be some kind of guideline, at least in that, that says there's certain things you can and can't report and for right. certain lengths of time. Right. Would you be willing to look at that and, and see if there's something that Oklahoma could do, at least as a Band-Aid, until something more comprehensive could oh, be done? Oh, I think so. And, and the thing about, and, and that's why I like that forum the other day, because I got to hear things that I don't know about, right? I, I've never been to prison, so I don't understand <laughs> that system. So just like the information that you sent me, representatives, everybody think, well, why don't they just fix it, right? And, and in fact, I had a guy that, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the scenario now, but he had a business that a law was changed some time ago that really affected his business in a, in a negative way. Well, we all got elected within a lot, I'm in my fifth year, mm -hmm. right? I've only got seven more years to serve, period, and then I have to go. Right. But anything that happened prior to me, I don't know or understand until it's brought to me, right? right? So I tell people, you don't, don't assume that your representatives <laughs> know what your problem is until you bring it to us. Right. And that's what I appreciate about the form that you had and, and the email that you sent, is because it makes me aware of issues that we, I didn't know we had. Uh, anything like that can be fixed. Um, something that's so complicated as, as that particular system, uh, we could simply do something like run a law that says any state agency or business in the state of Oklahoma uh, cannot go further than 10 years back on a, right. on, a, on a criminal record, right? And then it doesn't matter what it is, and you can specify uh, if, it's, if it's rape, then maybe you want to know that if, you, right. if you've got a guy that wants yeah. to work in a female environment. Sure. Or if it's uh, embezzlement, maybe you want to know that before you make them your accountant, you know, <laughs> yeah. things like that. But if it's specifically related to that. So yes, there's absolutely things we can do. Uh, the limitation I have as a representative is I've got eight bills and 10,000 issues, <laughs> right? So every year I only get to run eight bills. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, on the Senate side, a Senate senator can run 100 bills. They don't have limitations. That's, really? just, that's in their own rules. But they've got 48 members. We've got 101. So if 101 of us were unlimited, uh, yeah. we'd be here forever. Right? So they have to limit us on our side. Uh, but I've seen senators on their side run 50 bills. Mm -hmm. right? So they end up having about the same amount of bills every year that we do, even with our limitations. Uh, so in a given year, we'll see three, 4,000 bills introduced. Wow. Uh, we'll pass three or 400. And that's what goes through the process. But yes, it depends on priority and whether or not we can right. find somebody that would be willing to run a bill like that. Well, and I, uh, people have to understand too, and I think we lose sight of the fact that you're one person in a system that's right. that is set up to prioritize what's best for Oklahoma as a whole, not just a segment of the population. I, but that doesn't mean the segment of the population doesn't have legitimate needs. That's right. Um, but we have to understand that you're one person. You and Representative Humphrey, you and Representative Humphrey and Trisha Everett has three people in you know, out of 149 legislators, and then you still have the governor, and then, so, sure. yeah. I get that, and hopefully everybody else will get that there's a lot more involved than just you saying, yeah, I'm gonna do this. One of the well, biggest things I hate about governors and, oh, and yeah. presidents is when they're running for office, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna, you can't make that promise because it has to go through a system to even right. get to you. Exactly. What I can promise is that I will run legislation. Right, I can promise sure. that. I can't promise you I'll get it heard. I can <laughs> promise you to get through the committee. Uh, but yeah, that there's, and, and another thing to understand, and, and until I was in that seat, every person that comes in my office is passionate about their cause. Sure. And we might have one that's passionate about prison reform. We might have one that's passionate about water. We might have one that's passionate about uh, electricity. I mean, it, wind, for right. instance, or uh, any type of energy. But they get aggravated if you don't run something that deals with their particular issue when I've got 200 people standing sure. at my door wanting to run something. Uh, but what I have learned is every year we have freshmen that really don't have a lot yet because they're still learning mm -hmm. from it. So I can actually take a bill and go to a freshman legislator and say, would you be willing to run this bill? Okay. So I've got my eight, but I've also got six or eight other okay. folks that I can go to to say, man, this is a good bill. Can you please run this? It board? helps them get experience pushing the bill through the process. Too. Exactly. So. Exactly. So yes, it is possible. We just have okay. to work on it together. 
Well, I appreciate that. I know this is a huge issue that can't be solved in one conversation. It's not going to be solved in one legislative session either. That's right. <laughs> so, That's right. But we do have some fantastic people, including yourself, that are willing to listen. And uh, from outside this setting and even outside the forum, we've had a couple of conversations. And looking at some of your voting history and, and some of the things that we can tell that you're willing to do what you can. And that's all we can ask of anybody that you do what you say you bet. and you try to do something. You, you know? bet, absolutely. And so that's going to bring me to my last question. And it's going to be a little bit, no, it's not going to be, it's going to be completely off the commerce aspect of this, but still related to the justice reform. Um, and it's when we had the justice reform and your final comments um, about, I think it was the gossip case, and, and you referenced Julius Jones. Just kind of share a little bit about where your heart, at, heart is in that sense. And... Um, kind of tie into that if you can, what we can do legislatively or just executive or something that will protect the pardon and parole board from political pressure as they try to exercise their constitutional duties. Sure. Uh, it's hard enough to face and sleep with yourself at night when you're trying to make those decisions when you've got so many people making it a political issue. Share your final thoughts from the forum and kind of what we could do to protect our parole board. Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I I got involved in this in a, in a really different way. I'm a business guy. Uh, I'm a hunter. Uh, I'm a Marine military guy. Uh, I knew nothing about criminal justice. But I had a case brought to me two years ago uh, by a friend of mine who said, Kevin, I, I think Oklahoma has a guy on death row that's innocent. And I said, there's no way. Everybody on death row is innocent, right? And so honestly, my, my take was, uh, it's, it's not possible, right? But I'll listen. And so uh, there's a, a show called uh, Killing Richard Glossop. I think it's on Prime or uh, Netflix, one of those two shows. And I went out and paid the 10 bucks to watch that <laughs> show. And I thought, you know, I know Hollywood can make anything look the way they want to make right. it look. And so I was still doubtful even after watching that. But I thought if even 10% of the things they said in that video are true, it's possible that we could have a guy on death row that's completely innocent. And so I started reaching out and doing some research. I got a hold of his attorney uh, that he has now that he's had for six years. Uh, Don Knight's his name. And, and Don sent me a ton of information. And I started reading on the information that he had found uh, since Richard was gone through his second trial and, and was named guilty, right? So he's been on death row now for 25 years, and for the first time in 25 years, he has an attorney that actually did the research and did the interviews that his first two attorneys didn't. The first one, it was his very first criminal case ever, ends up trying to commit suicide himself because of the result that his client got. He said, it was my fault. I wasn't prepared. I didn't know what I was doing. And so because of that, he gets a second trial. Well, before the second trial actually started, they gave him, he got an attorney that he actually hired that started to do the work that was necessary. And he goes and he makes one interview with the guy that actually committed the murder. And during that interview, he says, uh, uh, has that interview with him. The next day, the DA at that time said, you threatened the guy that committed the murder. You threatened him. There was no other witness, called it a threat, had him thrown off the case. So the one attorney that was actually doing something got thrown off the case, and he gets another appointed attorney, which people who know this attorney even still today say he's a great guy, he's a nice guy, one of the worst attorneys you can ever have. And, uh, and so his second trial, he gets this attorney. Now, mind you, the people that put him in prison is the guy that actually committed the murder. No one questions that... This guy committed it, and the one that's on death row did not commit the murder. He did not. Wasn't in the room. But he said in an interview process where the police are actually interviewing him, uh, they ask him, uh, you didn't do this on your own. We know you didn't. Uh, so surely somebody else helped you with this. And basically, if you point out who that is, then you won't get death row. You'll get life in prison, right? And they said, we know Richard Glossop had something to do with this. And he says, well... It was Richard Glossop that helped me do this. He's the one that coordinated it, right? So he points the finger at Richard Glossop. Richard Glossop's arrested. He gets life in prison because this prisoner gets off of death row to point a finger at him, the one that actually committed the murder. And so 
20-some years later, Don Knight starts this investigation. Found 200 people that had never been interviewed, ever, 20 years after the fact. 27 affidavits in that that are everything from they heard somebody else in the room, such as a female, so there were two people in there possibly committing murder. She's never been named. Uh, they have uh, uh, clothing now. Uh, in fact, Don Knight, for the first time here just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, got to put his eyes on that clothing. And when Justin Sneed committed the murder, they said, well, where are your bloody clothes? And he said, well, I put them in a can in a laundromat at the hotel. Police had never found it. So they went and got the clothing, found it in that can. For the first time, Don Knight got to look at it. The police came back and said there were two sets of clothing. He said, oh, I wore one set under the other. They said, okay. They bought the excuse. Never investigated it anywhere further. Don Knight gets a look at it the other day, and he says the men's jeans were men's large jeans. There was also a pair of sweatpants that was a child small. And we're supposed to believe that he had on the child's small sweatpants underneath the men's large jeans, and they, they were all his clothing. Um, they're going to do a blood analysis on it now, so they'll at least have that. But all of this stuff has never been presented in court. They've never seen it. And yet, when we listen to, to Prater and some of the DAs now, they simply believe that the system's flawless. Uh, he's on death row. You had two juries that put him there. In fact, we've got a piece of paper that from the first trial and the second trial, there's a box of evidence that was destroyed. Why? What was in that box of evidence? We know what it was, but why was it destroyed? And why was it not relevant to the second trial? And why were they able to destroy the evidence? So many inconsistencies that as a lawmaker legislator, I just had to do something. And so for me personally, um, if I can't get something done through the legal process here, then I'll go on every Dr. Phil show that I can to, to talk about this case because I personally believe that this guy is innocent and was not in a room, did not commit the murder, didn't have anything to do with it. And the one thing that kept haunting me in that case is Richard Glossop was the hotel manager. Every dollar went through his hands. If he really wanted the money, all he had to do was put it in a bag get in his car, and drive off. He didn't have to kill anybody to take half of it. Yeah. And we're supposed to believe that. Now, I know that criminals aren't common sense. I get that that yeah. can happen. But it just doesn't make sense to me that this guy that didn't have anything to do it. We've got affidavits, people that were in prison with Justin Sneed, where he told them that he set him up. Can't present it in court. And so in Oklahoma, and Julius Jones, the same thing. Julius Jones got the commutation hearing. And now we'll see what happens to that. I imagine there's going to be an appeal to see where that goes. Um, but at least he got the hearing. At least he got to present. Yeah. you know. And that's what I'm hopeful with uh, Richard Glossop is to be able to do that. And a part of the things I'm wanting to change on death row is to create that investigative unit to where when there is question, you don't have to make a decision right or wrong, but you can push it over to an investigative unit that says, we'll help you make that decision. And we do believe there's something here Right. We need to either go back to trial or we need to make a recommendation, whatever that is. So, so yeah, I just, we're too good in the state of Oklahoma to, to, to just accept that the system's always right. And uh, so I'll, I'll I think history has shown in Oklahoma, just mm -hmm. specifically Oklahoma, I think history has proven that the system is far from flawless. That's right. And when, again, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, we lose sight of the humanity of that person. That's right. It's easy. I mean, I, it would be hard for me to, even if I knew the person was guilty, to sleep with myself every night. Yes. You know, I killed this person without giving him a fair opportunity to That's establish right. his innocence. And, and that doesn't mean that we're not sympathetic to the victims. Absolutely. 100%. And, and I'll give you an example. In Ada, uh, there were two guys that were thrown on death row after going through a trial process for the murder of an individual. And the family, of course, hated these two individuals. They wanted to see them die for those crimes because they've gone through the process. They're guilty. Only to find out that Gilcrease, uh, who worked for the OSBI, falsified DNA evidence. Right Now that family that truly hated these two individuals, the victims, completely now today when you talk to them, they say, we were wrong. Yeah. We, we, we held hate for somebody that didn't have anything to do with these murders. And it's the same thing in this case. It's not that I'm not sympathetic to the Van Trees family. Right. I am. 
but I fully believe that we've got the wrong guy on death row. The guy that committed the murder, he's in jail, life in prison. But we've got another guy on death row that I, I believe doesn't deserve to be there, and that's not a disrespect to the family. That's just saying that. Well, I think the system at the beginning, in a lot of these cases, the, the victims and the families of victims, they don't know who to hate until the system gives them somebody. That's right. And then once you've attached that hate for so long, it's hard, and you've already gotten closure, it's hard to let go of. That's, I mean, hate, grief, mourning, those are powerful. extremely powerful emotions that are rightfully owned by those people. And it's, the, it's not the victims that are wrong. It's the system that so too often has tunnel vision on one or two people that they want to be guilty That's and then right. refuse to ever see anything else. Yes. And I, you can watch a thousand documentaries that would prove that fact about the tunnel vision prosecution oh. and investigations. Well, I would honestly hope that our DAs, our investigators, our police officers, our, everybody in that system would want the same thing. Yeah. They, they'd want to know that if the guilty, the guilty are charged and the innocent are set free, yeah. and to do everything that you can. One other little known fact in the Richard Glossop case, the investigator that investigated the murder case during that time, he and Richard Glossop had a run-in one time before when Richard worked for another hotel. And so Richard could not get what he needed from this investigator, so he went around him to his boss, and it made this guy mad. So now he's working on a death row case that prosecutes the guy that he had a run-in with before, and that's never been brought out in court. They've never talked about that. And so, so many conflicts of sway up. Even the slightest detail, it could sway somebody exactly. to just not look at this and go, I use well, I appreciate you so much no, for talking with me. Thank and, you so um, much for all you're doing. Hopefully, um, this will get quite a bit of traction. I've been gaining some ground on LinkedIn for some people and some other stuff in this space. And lots of people outside of the justice system space to get them aware of leadership in, sure. in Oklahoma. So hopefully we will be able to get some things. And I greatly appreciate your time. Well, thanks for your leadership. and so proud of your what you've done in life uh, after what you went through. So. Keep working hard. You're an example for so many other people. I'm just proud to be your friend. Thank so you, thank sir. you.